This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back, listening to Militantly Mixed. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, a podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine. And before we get into this week's episode, I just want to send out a big thank you to the folks who have been sending me messages via social media or emails about my recent loss of my cat Ronan. I'm still very much in mourning. I will be mourning him forever, but I'm still in that heavy, deeply emotional section of of grief. And while I do try to get through my solo recordings without getting choked up when I bring him up, um, because I am alone right now in, in, in my room and uh, the only beings around me are my cats, I just bringing him up chokes me up. So I'm still very much in that. Um, it is getting a little bit easier to talk about him without, <laughs> God damn it, without being moved to tears. But um, I notice when I am alone or when I'm with my husband, I can't help but do it. And this is uh, like my fourth take <laughs> of trying to record this intro. Um, and I'm just going to have to settle with it and just and just be like, this is what it is now. For a period of time, I every time I bring him up, I'm going to be choked up. So... I guess that's just who I am right now. When I'm with people, though, face-to-face and I bring him up, I don't get choked up because I'm very, very, very well conditioned not to cry in front of people. And it takes a long time of friendship or, or closeness before I do start to choke up or tear up in front of people. I, I have a lot of baggage about crying in front of people or being vulnerable. So the last couple of weeks when I have been obviously crying on my recordings, they, I couldn't stop and I couldn't get a clean recording without it. So I just eventually had to put out what was available because I just couldn't, I couldn't get through it. So that's, I guess that's probably still happening. I thought I was going to be able to get through this one without it. But, um, like I said, I'm on my fourth take and I, I keep choking up every time I bring him up. So I do appreciate the the heartfelt messages that I've received um, for people who do have pets or um, are animal lovers and kind of understand this depth of grief uh, for the loss of of an animal. You know, they you, those messages were really touching. It is uncomfortable being vulnerable for me. I one of the things I hear about this show uh, from people is that they appreciate how transparent I am. Um, and up until recently, that transparency has kind of been mostly just about things and events that have happened to me or um, what seems like I should be very emotional about but but can tell the stories without a lot of emotion now are the stories about my childhood abuse or rape or sexual assault that I've suffered, um, hurt, sexual harassment that I've suffered, things like that, where I can talk very openly about them in a very disconnected manner because of either dealing with those issues in therapy and just kind of now being able to talk about it without being driven to emotion or context, I guess, of, of the conversation maybe that I'm having where emotion isn't necessarily the appropriate move in that moment. Those are areas in which I've dealt with in therapy for so long that I can talk about and be very transparent about and, and not uncomfortable. But when emotion, especially dealing with sadness, 
and to a degree affection, physical affection, uh, I struggle with that still. And that's very much a part of my conditioning from the kind of family that I come from. So um, I'm working on believing that it is not problem, that it's not a problem to be emotionally vulnerable in front of people, whether that's, I guess, in person or now on my recordings. Um, it's something I am working on. <laughs> it sounds so stupid, but um it's an issue for me and it's becoming more and more apparent that I actually have some serious baggage when it comes to expressing affection or emotion in front of people except for my husband because he and I have been together for nearly 20 years and I'm just used to him at this point. If you listen to my other show Blurred Comics it's actually a common thread in the thing where Blurred Vision is reminding me that you know he's my friend from a long time and cares about me and that it's okay when I get emotional and me just fighting it at all costs so I am aware of my issue and I'm working on it I guess so that's why I eventually did just have to put out the intros for the last couple of weeks where I was emotional because I couldn't not be and I didn't want to derail the show and as hard as it was to even get up and work during those times, because another thing that I have been, I've talked about on my shows before is that I, I do suffer from chronic persistent depression and I fight off major depression fairly frequently. Um, last year was sort of the end of a, about a three, two to three year major bout of depression and the podcasts really kind of stopped that for me. It kind of got me out of, dug me out of that hole. And now I feel the symptoms of major depression coming back and I'm really fighting it. A lot of it is triggered with the sickness of two of my cats and then the eventual death of Ronan. Because they, they're my responsibility. Everything about their life is my responsibility. And so to lose them feels like a failure. Even though they're getting old and that's just part of life, um, I can't help that feeling that. So I am fighting major depression. I'm trying to dig in hard on the shows because that's what pulled me out last time. But the last two weeks, I will say, was a struggle to get through editing the episodes for all three shows. And thank you to Javia for her understanding and just sending me her episodes without me having to do many cuts so that I could just put it out for her. I really appreciate that she made that effort for me because it did help to not have to uh, sit there and listen through every portion of the episodes like I normally do for these last two weeks because it really was hard to just kind of be up. For people who do suffer from depression, you understand that uh, sometimes depression has is so physically painful that it is hard to do anything. And I was definitely in those uh, moments a few times over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we also, two weeks ago, we missed the episode of Blurred Comics because I, um, I was sick too. I haven't been taking care of myself. And um, I was really sick and I kind of lost my voice uh, for, for the day of that show. So um, luckily I have enough banked episodes that I was able to keep militantly mixed without a break. But Blurred Comics did suffer a little bit from it. And my normal sort of, de you know, clean up of the episodes, the audio cleanup and stuff like that, I was not doing. So if there is audio quality issues for the last couple of weeks, that, that is because I was just sort of not able to fully commit to my responsibilities for the shows. So I appreciate that people are still sticking with me and my downloads haven't decreased at all because of what I'm going through. But um, 
I'm really fighting. I'm, I, this is so important to me. Militantly mixed and blurred comics and black radical queer are so important to me in terms of just my day-to-day -day life. I want these shows to be successful. I'm very passionate about all of these issues that we discuss. And so I want to make sure that we keep this platform going for the, uh, for the folks out there that are listening to us and, and supporting us and needing what we're talking about as well. And so uh, those encouraging messages that y'all send to me every week, I, I do, I appreciate it. I, I really do. And even while the show isn't, you know, like the most popular thing on in podcasting at the moment, you know, I'm, I'm one of only a few podcasters that focus in on mixed race. I've talked about it before on the show, but also it's going to come up in this week's episode as well. My guest today, Natalie, with her podcast, Some Kind of Brown, in which we focus on more of the experience of mixedness than just that we exist in the world. So we both in different ways focus in on what it is like to be mixed and from the mixed race perspective we're telling our own stories as javia says on black radical queer our stories on our own terms and not allowing it to be filtered or, or mixedness or our mixed race experience to be filtered through the lens of someone who does not understand what our life is like and maneuvering through being multi-ethnic and multicultural and in some cases multinational and just how we maneuver through code switching or through acceptance or desiring acceptance to, in different ethnic groups and, and things like that. So I know that <laughs> the likelihood that Militantly Mixed becomes the most popular type of show on the interwebs is not really necessarily going to be a thing. What's important is that we get big enough that people have access to us. And so one thing that I don't typically do, but I should really start doing is asking you all to share the show to somebody specific versus just, you know, retweeting or, or sharing our Facebook posts and things like that, which I really appreciate because I do think we do get some more listeners that way. If there is somebody in your life that is mixed race or a monoracial person in your life that could benefit from the knowledge of people that are not like themselves, pick a specific episode of the show that you really enjoy or that you, an episode of the show that touched you personally and give that to a particular person to listen to. Like try to pick one person to say, hey, this is something I listen to and here's why I think you would enjoy it. Uh, because if it's a mixed race person, you may be surprised about how excited or grateful they may be to have something where their stories are being reflected back at them. Because that's the common theme of the messages that I get from listeners is I heard myself in this story. I saw myself represented in your show. I feel reflected. And that is something that as mixed race people, we do not get very often. And so we tend to have to glom on to something that isn't quite what we are, but the closest thing to it. Uh, and, and that's how we attach or, or get connection to something in media. And at least with Militantly Mixed, you will actually get a person of mixed race heritage talking about their direct experience. And if you're mixed, you're going to be able to connect to that. And so please do pick a person this week and share an episode with, and you know, maybe that'll help the show grow. Maybe that'll help them spread it. Yeah, I guess that's it. I don't know if I went on a tangent or if I went off track of where I was going, but that's, I guess that's what was in my heart today. Uh, this week is the last of 
Women's History Month for Militantly Mixed. We focus this month on mixed race women of color podcasters. My guest this week is Natalie from the Some Kind of Brown podcast. And she and I started our podcast really close together. I think she says that I was about a month ahead of her or something like that. And um, both of our podcasts are about the mixed race experience. And she is still sometimes trying to figure out who she is in mixedness, but she's embraced her mixedness. And that's a different step in the mixed race identity than I'm in. Um, and some of our guests are have been people who just haven't been dealing with it yet at all. And some of our guests have been super duper grounded in the mixedness. And some of our guests are in that in-between stage or in a in-between stage. And in this particular case, my guest is like that. She, she knows who she is. Of she understands her ethnic backgrounds. She doesn't necessarily have access to the cultures of all of her ethnic backgrounds, and so she wants to make that discovery. Uh, but she is very aware of her mixedness and how it has shaped her life. And going forward, she wants to be able to, you know, tighten up her own identity in mixedness um, so that as she maneuvers the world, she can just be her full mixed-ass self. And we had a really great conversation. Her show is really great, too, because... She does talk a lot about what's going on in her own life. She she does have a major health issue that has impacted her show a little bit here and there. She talks a little bit about it on this episode, but you can hear a lot more about it if you check out her show. I really enjoyed talking to her, but I've also been enjoying the last six or so months of us messaging each other. Uh, we also share each other's episodes on Twitter and things like that. So this is another example of the difference between that I have identified, and this is entirely my my opinion, is I've noticed that in mainstream podcasting, quotation fingers, talking about whiteness, uh, you don't get a lot of this level of support and, and caping for each other. At least I have never gotten that sense from, from white podcasters that I've experienced or interacted with. But in the Black Podcasters United or the Women of Color Podcasters uh, group or the Asian American Podcasters group that I'm in, you get the sense of these people that are so excited that you are another voice in what they're talking about that they cape for you as much as they're caping for themselves. And this is what we've got going on between Natalie and I for some kind of brown and militantly mixed. We're two sides of a very similar coin. I focus more of the, you know, militant side of mixedness of being out there and being in front of people so that they understand they we exist and they understand how to talk to us and how to interact with us with with care and with empathy um and I you know while it may not be super duper obvious on every episode because I am talking to guests and they're uh, sharing their experience in my own life I have a social justice element to how I deal with my mixedness publicly. With Natalie, she focuses a lot on just just trying to maneuver as a mixed race person. Like, here's my story from a Southern girl who is just trying to figure it out. And um, and I really love her show. I, I love how she, she does it. And I'm so excited to just hear another mixed race voice. I want people to listen to her show and, and, sh and share in the nuances of mixedness that we talk about on our show. But if you're, if I'm the only mixed person that you're listening to, um, you're not going to get a full ass picture. And so I would hope that you would also consider listening to her show as well. 
So with that in mind, we're going to move on to my interview with Natalie. And for the final week of the Mixed Race Women of Color Podcasters for Women's History Month. I never say it right. I always say women, woman history. <laughs> for Women's History Month, we are joined this week by Natalie from the Some Kind of Brown Podcast. And Natalie, you you and I first interacted on Twitter. You had um, yes. you had followed me and then on Militantly Mix, and then I I saw what your your Twitter was about, so I messaged you back, and then we we kind of had an exchange. And this was like months months ago, kind of at the beginning of your show. I think yeah. at the time you maybe had like two episodes out, and then you know we've kind of loosely kept in touch, and we certainly tag each other in a bunch of mixed race podcast yeah. things um, <laughs> often. So I'm really glad to finally actually get a chance to talk to you directly especially because I'm familiar with your voice that's the weirdest thing about either podcasting or anything having to do with video is I listen to you so I feel like we've talked but we actually have never talked yeah I had that moment of recognition when I said hi on when I heard you on Skype so it was kind of funny <laughs> it is weird um, to have this but um thank you so much for joining me and why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself and then we'll get into it Okay, well, thank you for having me, first of all. Um, But my name is Natalie, and my podcast is Some Kind of Brown. It is another mixed race podcast, but mostly from the perspective of someone growing up in the South, because I think that my experiences growing up in the South might be um, a lot different than people growing up in the North. And I've been living in the North now for a month, and I can say that is most definitely the case, talking to some of my boyfriend's <laughs> friends, that I've had some experiences that seem to be very South-specific. Yeah, when I hear your show, I do see that, because I've lived in the South, but I am a Californian, and I've lived in the North-North, too. And only people in the South really talk about how different the South is from... <laughs> oh, no, no, that's not actually true. The only people from the South talk about the North being different. Whereas, like, oh. folks in the North don't think of themselves as Northerners. I can see that. We group everybody. Like, it doesn't matter Midwest, West. Like, there's no distinction. If you're We're outside, all Northerners. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just how it is. For some reason, I guess that's the mentality. I mean, we're talking about... I lived in Arkansas, and that was, I think, the last state to come back into the right. Union. <laughs> So there's very much so still this very separatist mentality where mm-hmm. we are in the South and then everybody else is in the North. Right. Everybody else is a bunch of liberals. Well, one of your recent episodes, you actually title it something about the Mason-Dixon line. And I remember yeah. when I saw it pop up on my iTunes, I started laughing because I was like, I it may be short of the bordering states, the northern bordering states, I can't imagine ever using the Mason-Dixon line unless I was in class. No, that's very common. Like, <laughs> I, before living here, I, like, 
really would tell people I've only been above the Mason Dixon line three times. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know anything about anyone who lives up there. That's so interesting. I mean, this really does show you like how weirdly we're way too big like america is way too big that we have this many divisions that it would never occur to me who has lived all over this country it would never occur to me to think about the mason dixon line as a real thing or to think about the division between the north and south although i will mention the south but i don't refer to the north as the north well Um, people in the south are still calling you people named yankees so (laughs) um (laughs) The closest I've come to that actually is living in Boston because they do refer, there is a lot of Yankee-esque, you know, there's a lot of old Americana and Revolutionary War things and stuff like that. So you you get it there a little, but not, I think, in the same context that I've heard it from your show with the, you know, you talking about being a Southerner and how unusual the North is to you because of your lack of experience of it. Yeah, and and my expectations of what it was going to be like. Yeah. Like, in my head, it's just like I went through the Underground Railroad. But I have to remind myself (laughs) that, one, my life was not at risk. (laughs) I did not have to follow a conductor through dangerous conditions. (laughs) You're like, I'm just in a Tercel or a Corolla and, (laughs) like, whatever, driving across the border. (laughs) Honestly, it felt like that. I don't know understand why i mean maybe it's because i'm dating a 100 dutch person and i've never met a 100 anything in my life oh okay to my knowledge i mean i don't go around asking people for their blood quantums but (laughs) (laughs) um i'm i'm dating a 100 dutch person which causes many jokes in between us but um are they dutch dutch are they american dutch from the north and those states that everybody is sort of of Dutch heritage? Uh, I'm in an area of West Michigan where they're like Dutch Dutch because Mm. we don't mix as a thing. Like we marry other Dutch people. We eat bonket. Okay. What is that? (laughs) It is a delicious almond, I think, pastry. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, my boyfriend does not care about culture or particular his culture very much at all so um it's me going i want to learn your culture he's like it doesn't matter it's the same with my husband he he's he's mixed but not mixed in a way where he grew up with that knowledge like he he's german palestinian but didn't know he was palestinian until he was an adult Uh, and so he thinks of himself as white and i don't see white when i see him so yeah we have very different views of who he is (laughs) (laughs) the only time my boyfriend will call himself dutch is if it's on the tail end or before a joke about me oh funny (laughs) yeah so um because I think on his side, there would be some pushback if um, we were to announce our relationship, uh, which we have no plans to. Um, you mean like to his family or? or... Some, of, some of his, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And um, my family isn't, uh, my family's complicated, but 
there is there have been some jabs about me dating a white person. I was like, excuse me. No one gave me jabs when I dated a, an African from Cameroon. Why am I getting jabs? Mm. For, <laughs> for Especially dating because you do adults. have white heritage, right? Yeah, I'm half um, Irish and German. Yeah. And then, and then you, you talked about also finding out that you had some actual indigenous... Um, or did you think that you did and you found out you didn't? I forget. It's been a while since um, I listened to your earlier episodes. but Yeah, that was one of the earlier ones. Um, I always knew that I had a significant amount of indigenous, um, heritage. I don't want to say blood because blood quantum to me is like really touchy or I, or I see it Especially very negatively. Especially where like Native American is concerned. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I have a lot of indigenous heritage on my dad's side. I always knew that, but, um... My dad is, like, the most self-hating, culturally-wise, black person I've ever met. I, my dad was that way, too. Uh, I didn't realize that till I was older, but um, he really distanced us from both the black and the native indigenous sides. So it was left to me to really discover what in the world was going on and try to get in touch with that side. Mm. And so... He'd always said that we were Cherokee, but we were rejected because he applied in the 90s when the Cherokee Nation was going through all of that with, um, I don't know if that you knew about it, but the freedmen. I remember something when I was in high school about proving certain percentages yeah. of blood. And it became a big deal in the, um, not the Eastern Band Cherokee, the ones in Oklahoma in that area, it became a big deal uh, because when they set the slaves free, there was a group of Africans or African-Americans. I guess at that point, they're still Africans. I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I mean, closer at least in terms of time, distance and time from Africa. Yeah. It it gets a little touchy when you get back there and you're like trying to label people, but... Mm -hmm. They settled on Cherokee land, and they had always lived on Cherokee land, but there was very little, uh, from what I understand, there's very little um, intermarrying. So Mm. I don't know what the controversy, I was born in 91, so I don't know exactly what was going on in the 90s, but I do know that the Cherokee Nation was trying to take away the, those, that group of freedmen's ancestors, well, descendants take away their ability to claim Cherokee heritage just because they've been living on Cherokee land. I see. Yeah, and my dad told us that we were rejected. We have enough Cherokee blood, he told us, to be registered, but they rejected us when they saw he was black and just assumed that he was one of those descendants. Come to find out, we weren't even belonging to that Cherokee band. We're Eastern Cherokee. Uh, mm. We came from the Eastern Cherokee Band and Choctaw, and we're enough to be registered still. So that's something that I've been talking to my cousin about, who's very, very involved in the community. Um, I don't want to get registered or go through anything like that until I feel that I'm participating enough in the culture. Right. I, I kind of agree with that. Because I, I don't think it would be fair to just just because I have enough of that 
claim that status. Yeah, I feel the same because I'm technically half white because both of my parents were biracial half white, but Um. I don't know the German Irish side. Um, My grandfather, who is like Appalachian early settler uh, Virginian, um, they I didn't know him. I met him maybe five times in my whole life. The last time I saw him, I was 12 and then he was gone. He could still be alive. I have no clue. So it's hard for me to like really celebrate or get excited about my German Irish heritage because I don't know the breakdown. I don't know really what happened. We have ideas about what happened. Mm. But the British side, I do feel I can identify with because I was raised around my British grandmother. Yeah, I remember you saying something about that. So yeah, I um I do feel comfortable claiming my British heritage because I grew up in the house where my Nana lived with us for a period of time. I've eaten British food. I drank tea the way a Brit does, things like that. So I, I feel more comfortable thinking of myself as triracial um, because I am, but, uh, or tri-ethnic, I guess, more, more accurately. And then in terms of my identif- my cultural identification, I'm hierarchical in that I'm black first. And then I'm Japanese, even though percentage-wise, those are the same. And then British also, percentage-wise, those are the same. But culturally, I was more immersed in Black culture and Black family. Mm. And then my next immersion was Japanese family, not not community. Yeah. Um, so, like, culturally in my family, we were Japanese and then British as well. So, so like, I – it was so weird also to be raised by a self-hating Black man who <laughs> – had us growing up in the hood around black folks and going to black churches, um, but really always kind of dismissing blackness. And yet here I am like just mad that I didn't come out a little bit darker so that I, so I don't have to explain myself so often <laughs> to non-black people <laughs> what I you am. Know, I actually just talked to someone about that. I don't wish for a different color change. I, I like the way I came out. It is interesting because my three siblings and I, we all came out very different looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of my features look heavily Native American, but not quite. They're more, some people get them confused with Asian. So I look like I'm mixed with some kind of Asian. I would agree uh, with that. Looking through your Instagram, there's, when your hair is straight, I see yeah. that you're Native in some way or that you're Asian because mm-hmm. of the posi- like the turning of your head or your whatever kind I of changes. I have a very low your... nose bridge. It's like my glasses sit on my cheeks. And... <laughs> so do mine because <laughs> I, uh, I got no bridge. I'm Japanese. <laughs> yeah, I have no nose bridge because uh, Choctaw? <laughs> who, who, I don't know who gets the blame for my lack of a nose bridge. Well, they at least does. come over from Asia, you know, however long ago. So you can imagine I mean, a shared ancestor and a, a shared ancestral grouping of some sort before they come to this land Uh, and sometimes when you see an indigenous person it's like certain indigenous people i can see if they get asked if they're asian too right so some of the same features are shared from that ancient ancestry yeah i don't remember that was it the bearing straight the bearing straight yeah yeah but Mostly people just are confused by me, and I don't care. <laughs> I just love hearing another mixed person say that, because that I'm is really confused. what happens. Um, I was talking to my boyfriend's best friend, um, and we were talking about 
code switching. Mm-hmm. He's into linguistics and I am as well. And we were talking about Ebonics as you could kind of identify it as a dialect. Oh, um, I hate the term though. I hate that we settled on the name <laughs> Ebonics. When I first got into high school, that's when they settled on it. And I was just like, really? We're going to go with Ebonics? I don't know anything about it. And the only reason I know it's a term is because I got in trouble by one of my friend's parents in high school for not speaking Ebonics. What? And I was like, yes, yes. So he gave me a ride home and his children are in the car with me. And he's just grilling me on my blackness. Like, do you know who this civil rights person is? What church do you go to? Because Did you talk course, about this on your show once? No, I you have did? not yet. Oh, for some reason it seems really familiar, but maybe it's just like all of our stories. <laughs> you know, we all have this. <laughs> we all get confronted by the black parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was like, ask me what church I go to, because that's a really big deal in Hot Springs. A lot of things are segregated. The churches, for sure, are still majorly segregated. Yeah. Um, just all this stuff. And when I said I didn't speak Ebonics, he asked me why. And I was like, because I'm not, I wasn't allowed growing up. Mm. And I was just, just really uncomfortable and questioning. And he's, oh my gosh, he got so mad at me, at me. Yeah, that's not your fault. You're a kid. I was like 15, 16. I was like, leave me alone. Right. <laughs> I, at that time I had relaxed hair and I was one of the only there were two mixed kids in my high school as far as mixed with black. And I was like, don't talk to me. I don't <laughs> right. I don't even know what I am. It took me to college to be very secure in my looks and things like that. Did you, um, from, excuse me, from that, like, as a child, you understood that you were mixed and, and just that culturally you were whatever you were allowed access to or what did you think about yourself before you started to figure out what you were so when I was very young I was painfully oblivious I didn't care about what people looked like I used to uh my my parents are very conservative religiously and there's a little Muslim girl and I made friends with her and my parents like oh god yeah yeah That happened to me with my dad, too. Uh, I I didn't care. I I came up to him. I was like, Mom, Dad, did you know that Allah is another name for God? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And I was like six. And I thought I learned this cool new thing and did not know that I was about to get locked in a closet. Like, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Like, I I feel like I had the same type of thing. It was whether they were a Muslim or Jehovah's Witness or something that was non like born again we, mm. we we he would walk us over to their house and be like my daughter can't play with your kids <laughs> <laughs> oh my parents were nice in the dl about it they'd just be like whisper because the south is all about like appearances you can't just right. do that it's like you're pleasant to them but you're not nice to them you're pleasant enough to not cause trouble and then but when behind closed doors, when you go home, your your parents are like, no, you cannot mm. go play with them. Do not talk to them. Do blah, 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 blah. And I was like, oh, why? They're my friend. But I didn't notice racial differences. Not until my first day of kindergarten. Mm. My parents enrolled me and my brother in an all-white school. Um, I have mentioned this in my podcast before. There's only 
one boy in seventh grade who was black and then us. Mm. Darren was in pre-K and I was in kindergarten. And the whole rest of the school was white. And I don't know if some of these kids had just never seen anyone who wasn't white before. I don't know what the deal was. But oh. I, I just remember from that first day, I had, you know, in the 90s, there was a, a limited source of hair care products. My mom would use mousse for white people in my hair. <laughs> <laughs> so it's crunchy. Uh White moms, please go to black hair salons and learn yes, how to yes. take care of your kids. I don't know how many yes. times I have to say it. <laughs> I spent I spent half my time either in with my really long hair crunched up scrunched up with mousse or oh done up like as a as a child who has fully black hair, which I do not. I have very fine, very soft hair, but it's very dense. And she would put me in all those colored barrettes with the the eight sections on your head. <laughs> so it was very extreme with my hairstyles because she never she never knew what to do with my hair. Right. But um, I remember the first day of kindergarten getting called Spaghetti Head. Okay, kids. Yeah. And having kids rub my skin and ask me why my skin was dirty. Okay, see, this actually hasn't come out, out on the show yet. But it happens, and it baffles me. <laughs> like, I do not understand what it is about whiteness that thinks that skin is dirty or that we taste like chocolate or, you know, whatever, depending on yeah. the shade of our skin. It's always I, food. It's always food. It's always food, right? And it's there's nothing like this. There's no reverse of this that I've ever heard of. Like, if a white kid comes to a predominantly black space and they're just like, what are you made out of? Do you taste like vanilla? You You know, yeah, right? Like, I never have heard the reverse of this thing. I do not understand what it is about whiteness because you imagine it's happening even when these kids aren't really properly exposed to racism, just kind of maybe just subtly exposed to it, and they don't really know that they're being hateful. I... Right. I mean, you're five in kindergarten. I was four, but um, you're very young. And so you're either repeating something from your parents or they genuinely had never seen anyone as dark as me. Yeah. And so for a five-year-old to say, maybe my skin's dirty, I, I can kind of like see it. But for me were you darker I, as a kid because you're you're very pale now but you I are am. obviously non-white to me or at least non-fully white depending on what people see in you yeah that's what makes me confusing now is because yeah. i'm pale um and people... now that you're living in the north yeah <laughs> you're gonna the, you're gonna stay pale <laughs> i don't care as long as i don't have tan lines that's all i care about <laughs> but um yeah, I'm all, I'm white, like pale enough, but they can tell there's something wrong with me. It's all, oh, you know, if there's something. No. Um, uh, an older person has asked me if I had a touch of the tar brush, which is a very antiquated. <gasps> yeah, wow, yeah. that's digging in the crates on. Yes, on um, they were very old, and I wonder if they were senile. Or, like, wow. approaching some kind of mental fragility. So they pulled out from the back back-of-the-day wow. thing. But, 
Yeah, I was dark as a kid. I can send you a picture of me as a kid if you want. But yeah. I was I played outside all the time. Um, I was a very active little kid. My mom didn't want us to get diagnosed with anything, but probably both my brother and I, a little bit of the ADHD, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, had problems with the sitting still. But I was darker then, um, and my hair was very confusing to people. Hair is a touchy topic in the black community, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to seem like I'm trying to distance myself, but I don't have black hair you and i are the same i also i have hair that can look like black hair depending on what i do to it yeah but it is way closer to asian hair in fact it just is asian hair i think the only thing is that it responds to humidity the closer to the way black hair responds to humidity so you know again i can put my my hair styles i can have traditionally black hairstyles but you can tell that my hair isn't exactly correct for the style. That's that's how mine is, except with my recent surgeries and things like that. It's changed my curl pattern. And oh, really? Very negatively, it's affected my hair. My hair is very long and it's healthy, but my curl pattern in sections is gone. Oh, so you have like some straight areas and some curly, deeply curly yeah. areas? So that's why I've been keeping my hair straight. Um, so on my Instagram for some kind of brown I mostly have my hair. I think I, all my pictures, my hair is straight. But if you go on my personal Instagram, my hair is mm. very rarely straight. But this well, yeah, I guess I'm kind of surprised seeing the picture that I'm looking at you now is curly. And I'm used to seeing you with straight hair. So, yeah. Yeah. But I've had too many medical problems in the last couple of years. Been exposed to too many. I've had too much. What's the word I'm looking for? Anesthesia. I've had too much medicine. Mm. And so... um my hairstylist was like, it's best if you keep your hair straightened, if not at the very least blow dried. Like right now it's blow dried and in braids uh, because my hair will get fairy knots. It'll curl up like individual stands will mm. curl up and knot in themselves. Mm. And the last three or so inches just don't want to curl in addition to the, the patches. So um, That's interesting. yeah, so I might have to keep my hair straight. For the foreseeable future. You but... said relaxed earlier when you were a kid. Did did yes. you, you did, was that because it was easier for your mother to take care of your no, hair? No, I begged her for it. Oh, you did. So, yeah, because that first after that first day of kindergarten, I came home crying and asking my mom if I could be white too. Oh. It wasn't. It wasn't that I understood that I was something else. All I understood was that I was different from the other kids in class. Right. So I didn't understand. I mean. You don't understand race when you're that little. You just know you don't look like everyone else. Right, yeah. And um, now that I'm older, I know it's a terrible movie, but um, Pocahontas, Pocahontas, uh, Aladdin, and Mulan were my favorite I get Disney it. Movies. You find yellow brown people and you're like, those are the closest people exactly. that look like me. And exactly. you, you glom onto it. I 100%... Like, I had the same experience. Uh, Mulan was a big deal for me, even though I was close to an adult by the time it came out. Because even though she was Chinese, it was like, well, they don't have a Japanese one. And white people think (laughs) we're all the same anyway. So, yay, Mulan, you know. (laughs) I didn't know know she wasn't my culture. She looked like me. Right. 
But the only difference was all three of those Disney characters had straight hair. And I would obsessively watch those three movies. I had the costumes from each movie Mm. and I would act out scenes. And I remember specifically being really upset that I couldn't reenact this, the scene where Pocahontas is uh, Miko's braiding her hair because it was straight and it just braided really easily. (laughs) It wasn't like, 24 hours of pain <laughs> right and then like the wind blows and her hair goes everywhere and I was like I want my hair to blow in the wind and I have, I remember very vividly that after I got my hair relaxed the first time one I cried two I got how an old were you when that happened push. seven oh no your hair wasn't ready no it was okay in addition to it not being ready my hair cannot handle relaxers it's eventually why I cut all my hair off I did the big chop mm. um later in my life because I have extremely fine hair. Yeah. There is not a relaxer made no. for my hair. Mm-mm. And it was taking out the hair around. Uh, my hair was falling out. Mm-hmm. My hair, one, wasn't ready when I was seven, but I was totally fine. And I remember skipping across the parking lot, looking at my shadow going, I'm finally forgotten. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, my mom's a hairstylist. And when I was little, though, she wanted me to present a little blacker. So she gave me a perm when I was like three. No. <laughs> All my hair fell out and um, eventually came back. And like, so even my texture changed, like whatever damage that was caused then. And and also she tried to hot comb my hair once and it broke off my hair. So there's like several times that my hair broke off or and had to start from scratch. And that's why I have the hair that I have now. Uh, once she started, she once she finally went to hair school though, when I was like seven or eight, but it, she didn't let me curl my hair again until I was um, 14 because then my hair was finally mature enough to handle it. Yeah. But same type of thing where, you know, I would braid it. I would braid it in multiple braids so that I can unbraid it and it would look curly when yeah. I was younger and stuff like that. But yeah, our hair was not ready for the damage that <laughs> that nope. was caused by and our And now if you if I straighten my hair, it's unless I get into humidity, it looks and behaves like white hair. Do you do a flat iron or a flat iron? I'm scared of chemicals now. Yeah, I bet, yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm considering them again, not because not because I want to go back to that necessarily, but because my hair texture has changed and there's really no guarantees that I'll ever get my curls back. Right. Especially because I have a lot of the conditions that I have are permanent. So I'm always going to be on a lot of medication and um, I get my esophagus dilated mm. once every two to three months. So oh I go gosh. under anesthesia for that. And medi- medicine does change your hair a lot. My, that, that's that's also another thing my mom would tell me. She could always tell when someone was on drugs, um, you know, whether they were like hard street drugs or prescription because of what it would yeah. do for their hair. And then sometimes people, she'd just have to tell them, you have to grow your hair natural because there's no way I'm putting a relaxer in your head when you're under all of these yeah. um, medications. So. And my stylist said I might need to consider not a relaxer because... My hair already falls out with relaxers, but some kind of chemical solution to straighten my hair because she does she doesn't think my curls are ever gonna come back, hmm. which saddens me a little bit. Yeah, I have pretty curls, so but pretty, yeah. <laughs> I had just found them again, you know. <laughs> yeah. But if that's what needs to happen for the health of my hair, I'll definitely be willing to do it. But mm-hmm. part of me, it's strange. 
when you're part black, it's so tied to your identity. Mm-hmm. And part of me feels like when I did the big chop, I was fully embracing that blackness within me. Mm-hmm. So now if I go back to chemically straightening my hair, am I rejecting that blackness again? You know, I don't ever want someone to, I'm, I'm very light skinned. I can't do anything about it. You know, it also reminds you of like how much blackness was erased through trying to mimic whiteness in, you know, the forties, the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, you know, stuff like that to where now we're actually in a place where we can embrace our natural hair but you have your body telling you it's not it's not gonna work right it's um, destroyed its own curl pattern so yeah. i it's i'm feeling a little conflicted this is very recent so it's a something i don't know remember what i told you we're gonna start out thinking we're gonna talk about one thing and then something else crept up <laughs> you weren't thinking we about this when we things. started talking <laughs> We were in a very different direction. We were in a uh, totally different realm, which we could get into if you want to. But I I just realized, I'm like, we are now 30 minutes into this discussion and we haven't touched (laughs) back to what we were talking about earlier at all. And now we're talking about hair and we didn't even think we were going to go there. (laughs) Well, we can talk about, we've talked about hair and how it's tied to our identity. I'm sure like anybody who's listening who's mixed with black understands the struggle I'm going through right now. Mm -hmm. Even no matter what the hair texture is, because some of for some of us I I have a bunch of freckles I have freckles I um am now obviously pretty pale pretty light skinned uh for some of us our hair is the only identifier or like obvious identifier that we're we're black well in your case let me ask this then um because in my case you see I present very yellow looking or whatever but I have black features and so black people can always tell that I'm black but white Uh... people can't tell I'm black Asian people can't even tell I'm Asian or they think I'm Filipino. Most people think I'm Dominican or Puerto Rican uh, because I'm yellow, but I'm I can see vaguely that. That would... black you know, looking. In yeah. your case, do you get clocked for black when your hair is straight or curly? No. Not by no. black people? No. Really? So you're not seen? I'm not. The only time black people might consider me black like, well, I'll, I'm always obviously mixed, so no one's going to think that I'm full black. But they think Asian, not black. Exactly. Mm. Uh, they think I'm Blasian at the very least. Okay, well, you get a little bit of black in there if they, if they think that. Yeah, but I don't have any, but that's only after talking to them. So if they guess, mm. they never touch on black when my hair's straight. But when my hair's curly, that's the only reason they guess. And they tell I've had many people tell me that the only reason I guessed you're part black is because of your hair. Hmm. But then I get insulted more because (laughs) are black people the only people with curly hair? I'm half Irish. That could come from that. (laughs) It's true. But, you know, when when American folks, regardless of race, are thinking curls uh, or Irish curls, they're thinking red hair. Oh, that's true. That's true. But I, I don't know. Um, black people, they only really claim me after they know I'm part black. Mm. And only if I meet certain standards. Of behavioral blackness? Not necessarily of behavioral blackness. Um, I've always been accused, even in my adult life, of acting too uppity or too white. Uppity again, another thing that is mostly brought up in the South and not. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> yes, it's a it's another one of those identifiers. If I hear someone call 
a, a light-skinned black person or a mixed black person uppity, I know that they have roots in the South, 100%. I had no idea. Maybe a little bit on the East Coast, just because, like I said, the the Northern section does kind of connect down to the old old times yeah. or whatever. But yeah, you don't hear that shit in California. You don't hear that on the West Side. Not at all. Wait, do, so... Do black people police other black people? Of course, okay, but okay, so it's di- it's just different terminology. Oh, okay. So okay, okay. like, there's just there's certain identify identifying words that just scream southern when you hear them <laughs> as a Californian when I hear it. And then and since because uh, my family has roots in the south, and then I also lived in in I mean a Texas like you could say south or not south depending on what state you're in i know everybody has different feelings but it felt very south what and what side yeah (laughs) and like i mean i was in austin which is basically new yorkers and californians who want to live in texas but every now and then you you know every now and then you'd get a good eastern texan or something like that and you're just like oh yeah this is still the south like it still is (laughs) there's things there's things that identify it but yeah uppity is a word that you really don't hear out here unless it is hearkening back to a relative or something you know Uh... where like you have an older relative that just that's how they talked back then or something like that but yeah just the oh, it's very common still to be to, called uppity that's interesting and it okay now let me ask this question then are you uppity because you're light-skinned or are you uppity because you and i'm using quotation figures talk white it's because i I talk white um i don't i guess in modern terms yeah <laughs> as the kids would say <laughs> i don't have enough swag when i talk or whatever mm-hmm. um i we were talking about my voice before <laughs> for <laughs> another reason i don't sound very threatening or i have a very soft voice soft and high and for some reason that makes it even worse Okay, so the voices that people are used to, like, because you did grow up around predominantly in a white school and things like that, mm-hmm. their idea of a black-sounding voice has a threatening tone to it? Exactly. God damn, the fucking South. Let's let's work this out. <laughs> let's <laughs> fix this that, problem. Is that, is that not a thing? Like, yes and no. Black? Yeah, like, like, yes and no. There is definitely a black sound, and there are, okay. so I am very much identified, because I'm a, I'm a code switch and ninja, I am all the races at any given time. I have been called on it in the workplace. In college, I had groups of friends that did not mix, and I had a group of Vietnamese friends, I had a group of, um, black and mixed friends i had a group of hispanic friends that i would speak spanish and they taught me how to dance with it's whatever i looked like people claim oh and there's a a group of persian and indian oh i can see that people would call you that too i can see it so they all claimed me they all thought i was what they were and I didn't know they had claimed me. I just thought I had made friends, you know? <laughs> and then they find out that you're not what they thought you were and they're disappointed at you because of the no, trick. No, by the time they found out, it wasn't even disappointed. They were like, oh, well, you're already enough like us, whatever. Oh, funny. <laughs> See, I had the opposite. I have people figuring out what I am and they're just like mad at me that their idea of me was wrong. Like, like how are you not Filipino? I was like, what the fuck? I'm just, <laughs> you know? But I get, I get clocked as black 
if I'm talking to black folks, because my code switching does go back to my old accent, my original accent, which is hood, Long Beach. See, I don't have that. I don't have that to go back to. So that's actually a learned code for me that I've, mm. that I picked up so that people would stop. Yeah. You know, saying so, things to me. Interesting that you say it as a learned code, because that is definitely what you're hearing right now, which is, is my current primary way of speaking. It is a learned thing that I had from when I left Long Beach when I was 16. This I my aunt basically worked on me to uh. to help get my to give me a hireable accent, basically, because as it is, my name is Charmaine Latrice. So like if I <laughs> if I'm if I'm Charmaine Latrice and even though I'm vaguely, you know, I'm at least to a white person ethnic. Right. If they can't figure out what I am, if I'm walking out there with Charmaine Latrice as my name, and then I'm sitting here counting to 10 and, and saying, you know, why you be playing me or why you be tripping and stuff like that, then, you know, that's not going to fly. I'm going to be identified right away. Whereas now, even with my name, because I talk the way I do and I present the way that I do, when they see my resume and everything like that in a job situation, I see the relief on someone's face as they come to grab me for the interview because they're <laughs> expecting to see Shaniqua because of my name. Right, but right. when they see me, they're like, oh, she's a vaguely Hispanic Asian, oh my God. you know, vaguely something. Yeah. And so they're okay. And then I speak the way that I speak. And so it's okay. But if I'm, if I'm around black folks and new black people are there, I get accepted right away. Because no, they hear my tonation and then they can see it in my face. No. But I then have to go to the checks. Like, are you with it? Do you know what's going on culturally? How do you feel about the police? Do you like... Oh really? So you get quizzed in your yeah. blackness. How and how does that make you feel subtle. though? Like how do you deal with that? Because I don't have that experience, so like um, is it insulting? I imagine it's insulting. I I've talked about this before on my podcast. When I was growing up, I didn't want to identify either as black or white. Mm-hmm. Um, my cousin, who I'm talking to, who is Choctaw, came to visit when I was very, very young. And I remember that visit. And he taught me a little bit of the culture. And he taught me some songs. And he took me to some powwows. And I fell in love because mm-hmm. everybody was, like, toasted brown like me, lightly toasted brown like Got me. It. You I felt was more reflected there. there. Yes, I was reflected there and completely accepted. Nobody mm. questioned anything. And to as a little kid who was questioned on the first day of kindergarten, that environment was so welcoming to me. But right. I only had access when my cousin was here, and then my dad distanced himself from that side of his, from that side of our family, mm. and I lost that connection. So growing up, I would get racism from white people from black people and I just wanted to nothing to do with either of them and that I just wanted sense. to identify as Cherokee like right. I as soon as possible I wanted to get registered as Cherokee learn the culture and hope that no one ever found out I was white or black hmm. that makes um, sense to me I mean it's heartbreaking but it makes sense to me that and I know desire... it sounds terrible too but I was young no and... I mean I don't think it sounds I don't think it's I don't think it reads as you are horrible because you thought this way I think it reads as a child who wasn't prepared like like our parents do not know how to prepare us for our mixedness because they they either even if they're mixed they didn't live in a world where they weren't what they presented as like you know yeah. perhaps your dad I don't know what your parents look like but 
Like, my dad looks black, even yeah, though he's half white. my parents present as white and then black. Right. My my mom looks white because she dyes her hair blonde and she wears green contacts and she's the palest of her, her family. If she uh. takes her makeup off, she looks Asian. If she has dark hair, she looks Asian or like mixed Asian. But she doesn't often present that way. So And she gets mad that people see her as a white woman and not as an Asian <laughs> woman. It's like, bitch, you're dyeing your hair blonde. What do you think? That's um, actually really funny. When I was blonde, people thought I was white, period. Yeah. Period. And that's the first time in my whole life people accepted me as white without me having to say anything. Hmm. Not that I ever fought for being white. It was just <laughs> the first time no one ever asked. And, right. Um, and then if something happened, they'd be like, you're not white? Yeah, like uh, like you just incognegroed and they're all horrified because they don't know what secrets they told you. <laughs> right. Oh, oh, oh. Some. So I've when I was blonde, there's a reason I'm not blonde anymore. <laughs> because I just got so uncomfortable with people telling me. Um, I had a woman at, I was religious at the time, at church come up to me and be like, oh, isn't it crazy what's going on in the world today? And I was like, yeah, what do you mean? <laughs> and she's like, oh, all these black people just blaming the police. <laughs> Wow, just that's how we're opening our conversation. Jeez. <laughs> I knew her. And that's the thing. I knew her. I thought she knew. <laughs> Isn't that weird? So there's only times around white people where I where they don't know that I'm black and they just say things. Even though I'm not white presenting, they'll just say things because they think in some way we're teammates and you're just like, mm, do I come out the closet right now? Because Well, I came out. I came out. I was like, you do know I'm one of those, right? <laughs> yes, queen. And she just looked at me. And she was like, well, I'm going to go get some sandwiches. <laughs> you better get yourself a sandwich. I was like, okay, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> and when I started dyeing my hair back, um, I think maybe not everyone knows this, but when you go really blonde, you can't just go black. Right. You have to go brown yeah, and then darker brown and, and stuff like that. So when I first dyed my hair brown... I had someone pull me aside and um, tell me I was being a bad example by dyeing my hair in a natural color. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I stared at him and I said, what do you mean an unnatural color? He's like, what happened to your beautiful blonde hair? I said, a bottle. It came out of a bottle. Right? No blonde that looks great as a blonde isn't treated in some kind of way. Like, there's so (laughs) few, like, natural blondes that just are out there looking like queens, you know? Most of them need some kind of enhancement for that to work I, I i was just i'm still kind of speechless about it but as also a, um, brown is one of the hair colors bitch like <laughs> i know there are just so many things wrong with that but because because of all that back to your original question because i'm crazy and i go off on fine keep it tangents keep it but um i think i would be more insulted by having to pass through the hoops for people who are black to accept me as black if I didn't have that experience growing up where I didn't want to be black at all. I see. So now I just expect both white people and black people to try to put me through these hoops to justify whatever I am. Mm. And I feel no need whatsoever to justify myself as an Irish person. I grew up with that culture. I know a lot of traditional songs. I went with my friend who is like redheaded, freckled. Her family's from Ireland. I went to her with 
uh, to session at Irish pubs when we were in college. Mm-hmm. I don't care. Like, if you don't see me as Irish, that's your problem. <laughs> right. But I also kind of feel the same way about black people. But I, for some reason, I want more acceptance there. But I still have this very strong drive to be seen as an indigenous woman. I see that. And I think, like, what you're saying isn't much different than I feel or anything that I've heard across the board on on the show so far. It's any of us that are mixed with Black, primarily. Sometimes it is the any um, OC, non-Black OC, but most of us that are mixed with Black, we all tend to want to, if not identify more on the Black side, be at least accepted more on the Black side. Mm -hmm. And... And in some case, there's only one case in which the person actually says it in my show on my very first episode where he says, you know, he presented light skin black and and he was only raised by his white side. And so he's like kind of fighting to be seen as white because he Uh stood out so much in his family. Shout out to John Corbin. He's awesome. Um, (laughs) But like, you know, I think most of us have this thing where it's just like as a mixed person who is racially ambiguous, we just want someone to clock us for something. You know, yeah. and I know no one's ever going to walk up to me and be like, you must be a, um, an eighth Irish, an eighth German and, and <laughs> a quarter, you know, Caucasian British. You know, that's never, ever, 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 ever right. going to happen to me, even if I'm standing next to my British family, which in most cases, when I have stayed next to my British family, I have been asked, what is the relation between like, how are you guys in the same space? Because you don't look like you could possibly be family. Whereas the black side is a lot easier, even though I present very yellow, I look black feature wise, and I, I am first black in behavior, the coat, the, the, the presentation most people get of me now is a code switch, because my actual code is black. Um, mm. And so I I feel that like if someone just comes up to me and accepts me as black without any question and without ever having a conversation, that is a way more fulfilling interaction for me than someone, even as a mixed person who's like out here trying to be professionally mixed and shit with my podcast and everything. Yeah. You know, if someone just automatically accepts me as black, I do not question it. I just let it wash over me and I'm excited. I'm never accepted as Japanese from Japanese people. You know, my family, of course. Yeah, that's but... how it is with white. Like, if for some reason, if you're mixed, if you touch anything to white, you're no longer you're a no part longer of that community. White. Yeah. And, and, and I've just kind of accepted that. And I just want to be identified as an indigenous black person. And that makes sense to me because, like, we come from cultures, you know, there are there are aspects of both of our of both of our various cultures that they do kind of leave an arm's distance to mix folks, but Mm -hmm. they are primarily more accepting. I think at least in my experience, black folks, but I am, you said you had the experience with your indigenous side too, where they were, you know, far more accepting than you've ever felt in any white space. And even as you have white people in your family or white friends, or, you know, you work in a white environment and you do feel that you have allies or love, you never, we will never really understand each other. Yeah. Because I can't, I can't maneuver the world as a white woman. I never, never will be able to, even as I am half white. I am a quarter black, but I can maneuver the world as a black-ish woman. I only, like I said, I only maneuvered through the world as a white woman for a period of a couple months. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done because (laughs) (laughs) because you don't get the nice side of white, some white people anymore. Mm -hmm. Then you get to see like the real nitty gritty depth. And I'm not saying every black, I mean, every white person is like that, but 
just like that lady, you know, those crazy, th- those black people on the police, you yeah. know, I, I'm going through this weird thing, which I'm going to talk about in the future on my podcast, but I'm going through this thing where I, I'm trying to resist the people of color and then white people, but you know what? White people aren't, you're not helping me. Right. <laughs> you're not helping me see you as I'm immediately like not my friend. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's a very strange place to be in in this world, and um, mm, I understand feeling bad for white people who you know who are not racist, mm-hmm. but there is an, a certain amount of accountability. Yes, that is there when it's unfortunate, but this our country has a history, a very bad history, where from the people of color side, white people have a bad rep. I mean. Who didn't they persecute in the beginning right. of this country? Right. And who, and it's still going on. Or globally. Like, just globally. Right. right. And so you do kind of have, I feel like there is a little bit of a test that we have for white people. Like, are you going to, I've been called the N-word multiple times. Um, when I was younger, there was mm. someone at let to the end of it when I was a kid. It's, it's because in the environment I grew up in, it's still used in a very violent, very pointed right. way. So um, it's very hard for me to voice because it's been used negatively against me and my family right. as well. Yeah. So I don't think it, I don't know. I, I'm a, I guess there might be some places in the North because I've heard there are like certain pockets of white extremists Oh, Boston sucks for racism. Like, Boston is the most racist place I've ever lived. And I, like, if I ever have to go back for a visit or something like that or in a professional manner, I'll go. But I'll never go if I don't have to. It's an extremely segregated area. There is a black part of town. There is an Irish part of town. There is an uh, Italian part of town. And then there's kind of wherever, where all the other, like, generic white folks live. A lot of the language, like the, the colloquialisms and stuff like that are... Uh, you you need context to understand why it's okay for them to say what they said you know they have Uh, to explain uh, it to you if you're if you're not from there yeah it's a rough place and and i mean white folks white folks all the northern places are the same so like (laughs) oh it's it's i think it's a lot different i will say and you know a lot of people also will mistake california as being so liberal that they couldn't possibly be but i thought it was L.A. is also the place where we had the L.A. riots, where they let cops who beat the fuck out of Rodney King go. You know, it's where the Rots wires were. It's like there, LAPD is still to this day something that terrifies me because I grew up down here. And I've heard that. And I, I, part, I think my brain is broken. So <laughs> I've spent so many years thinking like everywhere outside the South is like this beautiful, wonderful place. I heard you say that on your show and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> that (laughs) there are pockets where it's not the case and it's not like I don't know Mm -hmm. I've heard about things in Chicago I've heard about things in New York I've heard about things in LA but like my brain's like oh that's the other LA (laughs) well well, like LA is this kind of thing where it's like an extremely segregated and racist it's 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 segregated by both race and class so once you become a rich person of color you now cross over into the white space you're still somewhat on the outside of it, but you you now get the you you now get the treatment 
of rich whiteness yeah yeah it's like it's like it's okay or at least you can go to like the side room while we're all in the ballroom and you're like in the adjoining oh, that sentence you know, is just so icky you know what i'm saying <laughs> like it's like that and and there's a lot of white people here who think of themselves as allies and they're so overdone in it that you you feel how racist they are because they're trying so hard to prove that they're not like white saviors, or are they just working too hard to prove they're not? It, it, it It's hard to describe it, and I, I wish I had a term for it, but it's something like, you, you know, the idea of, you know, a white person saying they can't be racist because they have a black friend? Yeah. It's that, except for they don't even want to say necessarily, like, and they want to step it up and be like, my sister has kids with a black guy. And so I have like mixed, you know, mixed nieces Weird. and nephews or something like that. Like, they need you to know that it's like in their family. Weird. you know and so you get that and you also get this thing of like i'm really here to yeah i guess white savior would be good in this case where it's really like i'm i'm here for i'm using gosh, my privilege this to... sucks because we're asking them to use their privilege to help but at the same time there's folks here that use their privilege to help in a way where it's like i'm the one come to me mm-hmm. i'm gonna make it happen and and it's yeah it's, so the motivations are not the same that's the difference it's like a real ally never has to tell you that they're that ally mm-hmm. i think my friends that i've made up here so far and my boyfriend if anyone ever said anything to me they would be like crazy defensive let me kill them i'm also like super short so yeah i mean i have that kind of friend too I have a but, lot of fr- white friends that I would say are primarily allies, but there's education that needs to happen. Yeah, like, they they wouldn't, like, have racial discussions necessarily to go mm. to bat for, uh, they just don't have the knowledge right. about it, because uh, I'm in West Michigan, which is a pretty white area, didn't know that was going to happen, but, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind. I don't mind being in a primarily white area. We're right outside the city where it's not. But I don't really have any white friends that are educated enough or understand enough to be, I don't know, I want to say motivated to defend the general people of color. Right. I, I think probably just stay out of it unless it strictly involved me and then they would be in defense of me. And that's the thing that I think whiteness needs to understand is that you can't just be a um, advocate against racism for somebody you know. Yeah. You have to see the injustice across the board and feel just as assaulted by it, I think, as people of color. Like, yeah. this is the, something that I don't think that the general white person understands is... If I'm in a room and a white person is being racist to a Mexican person and I am not Mexican, I do not see a white person being being racist to a Mexican. I see a white person being racist. Exactly. And Same. so I'm out here like I'm jumping in. It was yeah. like, why are you so problematic? Turn turn it back onto you. And now I'm in, you know, not just allyship with the with the person, the Mexican person in that moment, but like we are the same. We are the yeah. of color at that moment, and I need to band together with my brother or my sister to to, to defeat this thing. Yeah, now, I have the same mindset. Like, I won't stand by. Yeah, you can't. And I need white people to feel that way. I need to, white people to feel that compulsion to be like, you know, I'm not 
and not in the way where they're gonna say I'm colorblind or anything like that, because that's not a that's not. A oh thing. my gosh, that's that's just as bad. I need them <laughs> to think. see a person being attacked for something yeah. that's unreasonable, and so their humanity and their ep- empathy makes them insert themselves into the moment, and not as a white savior, but as a person that a is fellow human a being. fellow human being who was also assaulted by that moment like you yeah. shouldn't have to come from the group that is being disenfranchised to feel disenfranchisement you know what i'm saying like i think i think it degrades all of us if we're in the room when it happens yeah regardless of whether or especially not we're... if you stand by because you're gonna get lumped in with right the other uh, person like if you're silent on a subject when it's being brought up around me mm-hmm. and I'm hearing this subject and you don't say something, right? I'm going to assume you're on the other side. But um, these friends so far, like, I don't feel they're there. I feel like they're at the point where they just feel uncomfortable. Like they're afraid that they don't have a place to speak up, but they want to. And that makes me feel more secure around them that's a strange thing too because it's almost like they need a person of color to give them permission and then they get the permission and they can go out there and be warriors i get (laughs) i see this happen and i wonder what what do you do like it's the same thing happens on my on my show with guests who haven't had a chance to be around other mixed race people or talk about mixedness is that or especially if they're white presenting I've had several white presenting people say that they needed to hear me refer to them as mixed or see it in their face in some way where I, you know, I get a picture. I'm like, yeah, I can see that you're not just white. And then now I've validated their mixedness and now they can walk around being mixed. And I am not the person who's handing out that key. Like, it's not (sighs) like I'm not the queen of all mixed folks and I'm just here granting mixedness. But if I'm the gateway that allows somebody to to embrace who they are i'm happy to be that person but at the same time like i feel bad that i am that person for somebody feel like they need that yeah like that's that 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 hurts me as a mixed person because i have been out here and out of the closet in my mixedness and living out loud for a long time doesn't mean i don't go through identity crises i absolutely do but i'm out here being mixed and just embracing mixedness you know um for the white folks that don't don't know that it's okay <laughs> for them to speak up, I think is a very similar idea, right? They need a gateway to grant them permission. And then even then though, they will still need to monitor when it's their time to do that on our behalf. Yeah. Because you want them to stand up, but you don't want them to overshout our voice, you know? Right. It's complicated. Like white folks who want to be allies, it's going to fucking suck for you people because you're going to get it even from the people you're trying to defend, you know, they're going to be like, I appreciate it, but, and at the same time we're saying, but I still need you to stand for, like, it's so messy. It's so messy. Well, I've tried to explain it to someone who actually asked me how they can, you know, do those things. And I say, I will always be an advocate for the black community, but there are people in the black community who don't see my voice as necessary Mm -hmm. or welcomed or it's taking the place of someone who could be dark-skinned. Right. Uh, but I'm always going to advocate. Right. For the it, black community. Yeah, it shouldn't slow you down. It should just alter your path. 
yeah. you know, and a, a great example of a mixed race person doing this is, and I never remember how to say her name correctly. It's like Amandala starts with an S. She was in um, the hate, yeah, the the hate you give, and mm-hmm. she's also the the inspiration behind the Niobe comic books, which is like a half a mixed race half elf. It's awesome. Um, oh my gosh, she she was offered the role of Shuri. And she turned it down because she said, if Wakanda is a non-colonized part of Africa, my light skin doesn't have a space there. So she turned it down. I have feelings about that, actually. Except, but this is probably because I don't really have a really good understanding of the universe Wakanda lives in. Because to me, like, they're not colonized, but they're... They're also segregated. They're fully in, in, engulfed in a sphere that oh, okay, okay. that it's like hidden so people so people know Wakanda exists but they can't go there or at least the part that they can go is the front presenting Wakanda so they have so Wakanda is a place where mixed race does not happen right not because of um lack of colonization but just because it's because isolated it's isolated and also they are so powerful that they can't be colonized like the world doesn't realize the world thinks that they're just a tiny and a country full of sheep herders and stuff yeah but isn't they, it like cloaked or something yeah it's cloaked so they actually are like the most technologically advanced civilization on the planet but the world doesn't know so it makes sense that no white person would have ever yeah in that case there. in that case i'm comfortable with yeah so all the that. people are dark skin and it would make sense that there would never be a light skinned person there. So that I respect sense. that she did that. And actually as a mixed person, I was grateful for her to make that call because, you know, there are ways in which we are erased by, by being the first something. So Obama is the first black president. No, he's not. He's half he African was the first black and half white. As soon, yeah. As soon as he won, uh, I was livid the day he won livid because he was black all of a sudden yes because none of the media called him black until he won you're right and so i still don't refer to him as the first black president i do think of of them as the first black family i do but i think of him as a a literal african-american his father was from africa his mother is american he is biracial he is a mixed-race president so for me as a mixed-race person i need him to champion the mixedness because i don't want him to detract from the blackness like i don't want him to dilute the blackness for america so i need him i was excited because it was an opportunity to acknowledge that we are becoming a melting pot in this country and validate the existence of mixed race kids and, and people in this country. And mm-hmm. I feel like that opportunity was missed. Right. Whereas something like Halle Berry, who is also biracial, owns owns being the first black woman to get a Best Actress Oscar. And she refers to herself as black, even though she has a white mom and was raised by a white mom. And even though her child is three quarters white and a quarter black, she refers to her child as black. And while I understand it because mm. I am black, I'm mixed, but I'm black. I get that. But if I'm ever in a position of, of some sort of fame or award or elitism, I'm going to own my mixedness because yeah. I'm not going to take away the seat of a full black person or a full Japanese person. You know, like I'm I'm a mixed person. I'm a, I am a conglomeration of a bunch of different things, both ethnically and culturally. So I need to be identified that way publicly. And for me, I just want all the parts of me acknowledged in the, if I'm going to be in the public eye, then you're going to see who I am. Right. 
that's the way it feels for me. And I wouldn't claim to be just one thing because for me, that's like publicly denying the rest. Right. So like when, when Amandala did that, I respected it because I, I don't want to see us dilute blackness for people. I want us to be able to be a part of the family, but understanding that in a fully African story, our colonized blood does not necessarily fit, but we have our own stories. We still have a seat at the table. Yeah. Um, what do you love about being mixed race? Mm, as much as it can be sometimes a double-edged sword, I like my blendability. <laughs> like, um, I'm very fascinated by other cultures. And because I'm like vaguely whatever, I get to explore different cultures and people accept me into their culture mm. very easily. So I've been able to like really experience... Taiwanese culture uh, in the Taiwanese community and Vietnamese culture and Persian or Iranian culture. Um, I'm really into Bollywood, so I've been able to like learn Bhangra and stuff like that. Mm. I I enjoy that, even though I'm not part of those racial groups or ethnic groups. I. I look enough like to get in the door and so I get to explore <laughs> and play, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always think about it as like, because of our ability to code switch, because of our multi-ethnic heritages and our cultural, multicultural heritages, that we're more open to what is different from us because we're yeah. used to being the one that is called out for being different. And I'm making and a pledge to saying you're different. You can, you can go to all sides. You can go to all <laughs> sides. Right. And I'm making a pledge. Like I've been really working on it this year to no longer refer to myself as different or us as mixed people as different. I want to refer to them as the other and them as the oh, different. interesting. So that's an effort that I'm trying to make this year because I've been for 41 years of my life, I've been calling myself different. And I think, I, I wonder how that has weathered me as a person, you know, and like played into maybe some of my identity issues. And so if I start to view people, the monoracial folks or the people that are different from me as different and not me as the different one, then I, I think that might have some, I'm hoping that it'll have some positive effects on, so on my views of, of things. So yeah, I love that aspect. I do. I love the plug and playness of us. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I mean, just I've had Vietnamese and Chinese people, especially like uh, one of the uncles. Actually, they were both uncles. So, uh, well, as far as, you know, Asian culture, everyone's yeah. an auntie, uncle, yeah. that kind of thing. It's really only white people who don't auntie and uncle. I guess so. <laughs> everybody. I swear, because I have it on the black side. I have it on the Asian side, like everywhere. I like the Latinx, even though I'm not Latinx, I get confused for it. And when I have friends, the same auntie, uncle. Yeah, well, I've had uncles from the Taiwanese community and the Vietnamese community tell me, like, in these words, you look like us, so you might as well speak the language. (laughs) So I can read Vietnamese now. (laughs) Oh, wow. I've cantered Vietnamese mass, Catholic Vietnamese masses and sing for weddings in Vietnamese. Wow. I can sing in Chinese my spoken Mandarin, like, I can sing in Mandarin. My spoken Mandarin is, like, <laughs> questionable. Mm. I can read Hangul, written Korean, like, just because people are, like, 
you look like us, so why don't you do it? And I that used to be so conversational funny. in Spanish because they decided I should speak Spanish too. So <laughs> Oh, I bet I bet well, I guess you're in Michigan, so I don't know how much it is up there, but if if you went to Chicago, if you went to New York, uh you would be people would speak Spanish to you. People spoke Spanish to me in Arkansas. Like random people would come up to me and speak whatever language I've had people come up to me and speak Vietnamese I've had people come up to me and speak Spanish and I just look at them and I'm like "Eh, that was too fast I'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny Uh, well why don't you before we get out of here why don't you tell everybody how to find your show and all your social media handles and everything like that okay Uh, you can hear some kind of brown on almost every podcast platform podbean itunes google play stitcher tune in and we do have a facebook page that you can like and a facebook group that you can find in the community tab it's closed but there's no question so i'll just accept people as they come in i just want to protect people's uh people who are questioning things give them a safe space to talk and chat nice um also some kind of brown on twitter and some kind of brown on instagram cool well thank you so much for for coming on this was it was nice to finally get a chance to talk to you it's weird that i already felt like i had talked to you but you know i listen to your <laughs> show sometimes so um, i yours as well so it's probably contributed <laughs> yeah um it's just like hey how are you so yeah i definitely would love to have you back at some point and we can get into some of the other topics and yeah do you have just anything let... you want to say before you go i'm just glad that we both are putting this stuff out there because yeah. there's there are not a lot of people i don't want to say advocating necessarily but that's what we're doing advocating for mixed race identity people to identify mm-hmm. how they want and explore their identities right because it's, we both have interacted with other podcasters who aren't necessarily who are mixed race but aren't necessarily putting out a mixed race mm-hmm. geared thing and i i'm glad that you and i popped up at about the same time because it shows that we were both searching for something that wasn't out there. And yep. so we created it. yours out a, week, a month before I did. Yeah, I remember us being really close in, in terms of timing. And so it just shows because I, I tell people all the time, like when I was searching for Mixed Race Podcasts, they were like newsworthy type. Uh, or they you were know, dead. Dead or they were dead podcasts, right. You know, it was like a six episode thing or, or they had been out there for a while, but they didn't have a big enough audience. And listen, like my audience isn't huge yet. I and, <laughs> and like, I'm going to keep going because I'm not, I'm hoping to get a big audience, but I'm doing the show for me because I need exactly. this connection. Um, exactly. So like, I, I, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. I'm keeping doing what I'm doing. I really loved that we have gotten a chance to collaborate on an episode because right now, as far as I can tell, because I keep doing searches, I think you <laughs> and I are the only one in the experience aspect of mixed yeah. And so let's keep it going. Let's keep doing it. I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs>
Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Johnson. Music is by David Bogan, The One. And if you like what you heard on Militantly Mix, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.